Our second scripture reading today comes to us from the gospel. It's from the gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. You can follow along in your pew Bible or up in front on the screen. This comes from Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen for God's word to you today. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hid. People do not light a lamp and put it under a bushel basket. Rather, they put it on a lampstand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning once again, and I want to say hi to those at home watching online on Facebook Live and YouTube. We're glad you're with us, those listening to this as a sermon podcast, and hi to all of you who are here in person this morning. Uh, I love the energy uh, of a Sunday morning together in worship. Salt and light. These are the two central images that Jesus gives us today from this passage. According to him, his people, his followers, his church will be salt for the earth and light for the world. And what we want to do today is find out a little bit more about what that would mean. What does that mean for us in our own lives? So we're going to take them one at a time. First, Jesus says this, you are salt, the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its taste, how can the saltiness be restored? It's not going to be good for anything. In ancient Israel and into the time of Jesus, the main source of salt that people had was from mineral deposits around the Dead Sea. You've heard of the Dead Sea? Um, in the, a number of places in the Bible, the Dead Sea is actually referred to as the Salt Sea. Those two are synonyms. Because all around this area, there were deposits of minerals that, that contained a certain amount of salt. And so when it was dug up and it was used, it tasted kind of salty. But this composite salt wasn't pure. And so there's only a percentage of salt within it. So sometimes it was true. There wasn't enough salt in the mix. And salt's really important. As you know, it's a necessary nutri nutrient or ingredient for life. It can be used as a preservative to help food last longer. Uh, it can be used to disinfect or clean things. It has healing properties. Have any of you ever gargled with salt water? Yeah, it kind of clear up the throat a little bit. It's, salt is used for bringing flavor out in food and cooking. But then we also know that too much salt isn't good, right? Some of you have had, a, had to go on a low-sodium diet. Sorry for your loss. It's really hard. It's not as, it's not as tasty. <laughs> Too much salt, if you eat too much salt, it would actually kill you. So salt. What does Jesus mean when he says that his followers, us, it, are meant to be the salt of the earth? That his church needs to keep its saltiness because if we lose it, we'll be good for nothing. I think Jesus means that his followers have a distinctive and important calling in the world. That's our saltiness. We have a part to play in our community, in our nation, and around the globe. In the New Testament of the Bible, the, the church was this new covenantal community, which included people whose lives showed what God was able to do. It was a radical community. It included men and women. It included slaves and free people. It included Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles. It included the rich and the poor. It included people who had different opinions and ideas about how best to live within the Roman Empire at the time. A community like that is salty. There's a researcher in England named David Goodhue who studies growing churches, and he says that secular society fails 
at three main things that the gospel is good at. Secular society fails in three main things that the gospel message is really good at. Here's what they are. Purpose, pardon, and peace at the last. Purpose, pardon, and peace at the last. What's distinctive or salty about Christian church's way of life compared to the world around us? The first is purpose. It gives us something meaningful, worthwhile to do, to work on. I've said it before, but when I was away this summer on my sabbatical for two months, by the end of my time away, as great as it was, I was really ready to come back into the life of our church. And part of the reason is, this is where I find my purpose. This is where there's something to do that's worthwhile. Being with you is part of what helps my life have meaning. And the church can offer that to us, to we who are part of it. Some of those things uh, might include our mission commitments as a church. This year, we built a school in South Sudan, and Gabriel Nyok and his family are living in East Africa right now in Kampala, Uganda, getting it started. Our purpose includes connecting with our local, our local mission partners, like Bridge Communities, who we're going to be getting gift cards for to help families in need this holiday season. We're collecting that clean underwear for um, coming up here in October. We want to help our neighbors. That's purpose in our lives. Our purpose includes the way we seek to be a generous congregation, including and especially for people in a time of need, to help each other grow up in faith, to pass on our, our faith to the next generation, to help them understand who God is and why that could matter for their lives. We seek to show the love and justice to a waiting and watching world, the love and justice of Jesus. I think a big part of our church's purpose is about community, isn't it? We had this new members class yesterday, and around the room, everyone said, we want community. We want relationships. We live in a place of dislocation and even loneliness, and a church is a place to find connections, friendships, a listening ear, a space to learn. But one thing that I think is distinctive and salty about our calling as a church is what St. Paul writes about in Colossians 3. Listen to what he says. He says, bear with one another and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. This is kind of mutual forbearance, putting up with each other. We're, that's true. Seeking to be a people who, who commit to living together, to loving each other, even across differences, some of the things that might divide us up. If the gospel gives us purpose, it also helps us to pardon. We are people who live with grace. The reason we can live with grace, of course, is that we have received grace. We've received grace upon grace. Isn't that right, church? We've been forgiven ourselves. We've been set free from the things that hold us down. So we then respond with our lives. This summer, there was a memorial service here in the sanctuary for um, a member of our church who many of you will know, Krista Sinclair, 50-something-year-old wife and mother of two who died of cancer. At the service, Pastor Erica was talking about Krista's distinctive kind of faith and life, and she told us that she had once bought Krista a gift on Etsy, an online shop, and it was this mug that said, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. <laughs> and this was because Krista sometimes had salty language in the way that she lived, in the way that she um, thought about who was allowed to be in this place, who would be welcomed and shown honor. There's a saltiness to it because sometimes churches can struggle with who's an insider and who's an outsider, who belongs and who we're not quite sure about. 
And our sister Krista, now at home with the Lord, was quite clear about who she wanted to see in her church, which was not exclusive, but which welcomed all kinds of folks. In Jesus' time in ministry, he struggled most often with the good and decent religious folks, and he spent most of his time seeking out and reaching out to those on the margins, those who seemed a little less lovable, those who might wonder or worry that they weren't worthy. We need this kind of saltiness in our midst, where the distinctive thing about our church, one of the distinctive things is we claim each other, we cling to each other, we climb over walls that separate us. The power behind it all is Jesus Christ himself. He's the one who calls us together in the first place, and so as his people, as Christ's own people, our witness is our lives and our faith as we grow up together. So today is New Member Sunday, as we saw with the kids here, and we learned some new things about our, our new friends. And I want to say to all of you new members, I see you scattered around, welcome, we are so glad you're here with us. We need you as you come in to bring your salt and your story. We're blessed to have new people join with us because they add saltiness back into the mix. If we get a little too comfortable or too bland or too set in our ways, and churches can be like that, that's just human nature, a new infusion of saltiness helps us regain it. So if we're going to do these things, we're people who have a purpose. We, we practice pardon, and then we have peace at the last. We have a deep hope that Jesus will see us through. I think the word salty has another meaning as well. Some of you know this. It, it's used this way sometimes for somebody who's a little bit persnickety. That's what somebody said this week to me. Persnickety, maybe stubborn, a little tough, grumpy. Has anyone ever been salty like that before, gotten salty about something? I see you. Um, my daughter, Abby, is, in a, is a professional at avoiding bedtime. And I get a little salty about that as a parent. You know what I mean? It's true. She stays up real, she stays real quiet in the living room. She's hoping that we'll forget she's out there. Or I'll find her after hours reading in the bathroom with the door closed. She gets out of bed repeatedly and she interrupts my well-earned Netflix watching time. You know? And I get a little salty. This week I was, just, I was not happy. And I wonder, what are we as people who follow Jesus, what are we meant to get salty about? What are we meant to kind of... Get, get that way about. Is it any old thing? Is it everything? I think there's good guidance in um, the words of um, Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision, a Christian international relief agency who once prayed this prayer. You've heard it before. Let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. We could say it this way. Let me be salty for the things that God is salty about. Let me be salty for the people that God is salty for. If you want a good place to start with this, if you're looking for guidance about, hey, what should I get salty about, read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, just before this passage. It's all part of the same teaching that Jesus gives. It's, they're called the Beatitudes. Here's what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted, those who are reviled. Bless them. Be salty for them. Seek them. Jesus is saying if we're going to be the salt of the earth, we need to direct our saltiness to the places that he would have it go. So we stay salty in community when we put up with each other, as we live with grace and forgiveness for each other, and as we seek out the needs of those who are hurting. 
And then along with this kind of salt image, we get light, salt and light. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And he says, nobody lights a lamp and then puts it under a bushel or a basket or a bowl or anything else that starts with a B. You wouldn't do that <laughs> because nobody would see it. It would snuff out the light or it would cover it up. And if you're the light of the world, you're meant to let your light shine. I know that some of you on the way in today or during the service, you noticed that I'm wearing my clerical collar, right? You've seen this before. Um, some of you commented on it. Uh, this cl a clerical collar for pastor is a sign of uh, ordination and of a pastoral authority within the church. And I've shared before the story of how I got this shirt and this collar. Uh, a few years ago, I was traveling in Kenya, visiting a friend of mine who's a pastor of the uh, Presbyterian Church of East Africa, Edward Furi. Some of you have met him on Zoom. Some of you know him in person. And you know that I often, I don't usually wear a collar like this one, just sometimes, but in some parts of the world, like in Kenya, in East Africa, uh, and other places, it's a very important sign and symbol. Pastors will always wear their collar. In fact, I was visiting my friend Furi there, and he was so concerned about that I didn't have a collar with me, he said, you can't come to my church and be introduced as a pastor if you're not wearing a collar. What will people think? So he took me shopping on a Saturday afternoon in Nairobi, downtown Nairobi, to go and find it. We went to like a priest shop or something, and we got this, we got collars. Make sure I had the right stuff, you know, you got to look the part sometimes. So keep that in mind, keep the importance of that in mind, that he would not let me visit his church without my pastoral collar. I recently read, recently read this story about the Archbishop of York, this is in England, who's essentially the number two man in the Church of England, number two guy. His name was the Right Reverend John Sentamu. And John Sentamu, uh, Archbishop, was originally from Uganda in East Africa, where he grew up and studied and began to work. But as a young man, he spoke out against Idi Amin, who was the dictator of his country at the time. And so he fled to England after being arrested and all the rest. In England, he rose up into the highest ranks of their church, of the Church of England. He's the number two guy. So you can imagine that this is a pastor who wears a collar like that a lot, right? He used his position to try and shine light on places in the world that needed it. And once he was on uh, television, British television, in, in 2008, and he was talking about Robert Mugabe, who at the time was the dictator of Zimbabwe. A lot of you have heard of Mugabe. Uh, he was a decades-long dictator. Somebody who was not only corrupt, who was stealing the resources of his own country, but who clamped down on free speech, who outlawed political parties, and made life worse for his people. And on live British television, this Archbishop of York of the Church of England removed his clerical collar, took out a pair of scissors, and cut it up. And he said, I will not wear this collar again until Mugabe is removed from office. And he didn't for a decade. Until 2017, when Mugabe was finally forced out of office in Zimbabwe after decades of rule. And Archbishop Sentamu went back on TV and he put on his collar again. He used who he was. He used the place that he was, the position that he had to shine light on something that was important in the world. And somebody might say, well, Pastor Dave, take off that collar. You know, cut it up. Now's your moment. But here's the thing. This man in this story, he had a prophetic gift and a way of, of approaching prophetic actions in public. 
He was shining a light on injustice from his high platform. And for us, we need to do that same thing, but from our own giftedness, from our own positions. Nobody's the same as this guy or as one another. So we can't try to be somebody else. We can't live somebody else's calling. We need to live out our own uniqueness in Christ. So for me as your pastor, I'm not one who will cut up my collar and demand the overthrow of a Zimbabwean dictator. That's probably not my spot. Instead, I'm going to follow this uh, image that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 5, where he says that the lamp that is lit is placed on a lampstand in the middle of the room, and the light that it gives illuminates everybody in the house and gives light to all who are there. My gift is more of a pastoral gift here among you. I seek to shine the light of Christ with you week by week. I believe the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel brings new life to us, gives us light for our lives, and so I have a part to play in that. But so do you. Because Jesus did not say, you pastors are the light of the world. Jesus did not say, you priests are the light of the world. Did not say, you archbishops of the Church of England are the light of the world. No, he was talking to a crowd of disciples, a mixed crowd of disciples, folks who were listening, who were trying to follow him. And he said it to them, and he says it to you. You are the light of the world. You are uniquely made in the image of God. You have gifts to bring. You have a life story that matters, who you are and right where you are. So I want you to work out of the giftedness that God has given you as you seek to be the light of the world. Don't try and be somebody else and get caught in that comparison game. In the end, if we say we want to be the light of the world, we remember what Jesus also said. He said, I am the light of the world. So the light that we shine is really Christ's light in us. When we sing that song, This Little Light of Mine, I'm going to, what does it say? Let it shine. That's Christ's light in us that's reflected out. That's Christ's light that guides us. Christ's light given to us as a gift. So this week, I want you to continue to take these two images, salt and light. Let God speak to you about what it means to be the salt of the earth and the light for the world. May it be so for you. Amen.